0: The best script writing coach I ever worked with was really good at pointing out, here's where this falls short. Here's where these things aren't connected. And I remember once at the very beginning, and I learned never to ask this again, was, well, then what should they do? He said, I would not steal the experience of you discovering that from you for a million dollars.
1: This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief.
0: On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Happy New Year. Here at In Good Faith, we are taking the time to look back on 2022, With our whole production staff and talk about some of the changes that happened, but especially to pull out some quotes and some ideas from our favorite episodes through the year. So, I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I'm the host of In Good Faith. Our senior producer is Heather Bigley. Hello. Also, producers Austin Ball. Hey, guys. Peter Ellison. Howdy. And Leah King. Hello. This is our student production staff, and we would not be able to do what we do without them. And... Lots of the great ideas that have happened are theirs. So fun to all be together. 2022 brought some interesting changes. I have been doing In Good Faith for a number of years as a one-man band, and then as things expanded, was so glad to have producers come in and to have a team to make this happen. This year, we've been able to start doing some explorations of faith-based topics. So we'll continue to do our one-person episodes where we go in-depth with someone's experience with faith and belief. But also, we've been able to address topics like nature in faith or how we deal with grief and have some wonderful, wonderful guests on that. Also, we've started the In Good Faith Book Club. And if you're someone who thinks, I'd like to be part of a book club, but when would my Wednesday nights are full? That's why we're doing this, because you can read or listen to a book on Audible or uh, Book on tape and be part of our book club. Our next book club episode will be on the book Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. So go ahead, find your copy, check it out from the library, borrow it from a friend, and be sure you've read it because then we want to join in and have a great discussion about it. So, 2022, senior producer Heather Bigley. Hello. What's a quote? or a a moment or a guest from 2022 that was one of the favorites?
2: Well, I just want to first say that um, I don't know if anyone is, no one's paying attention, but usually I'm in the um, studio just sort of weeping um, whenever we have our interviews. We have some fantastic interviews here, and I have been touched you know, so many different times by all the different things people have to say. And it's been a real blessing for me. I have to admit that. And I'm really thankful for it. One of the episodes that I repeat to myself is actually Raj Mankhad. And I got to interview Raj. And we had a a pre-interview, which is part of our process sometimes, where we sort of talk through different questions and what people would say. So that's really helpful or can be helpful. And, um... And it's interesting, in our pre-interview, Raj and I said two different things. And then in the interview, we switched positions on each other. And we actually said the opposite of what we had said before. (laughs) Um, And we had this topic where we were discussing, um, in America, religion can kind of be consumerist, right? You get to pick and choose the religious traditions that you're interested in. And largely due to secularism, now you don't have to be born Catholic and stay Catholic forever, right? You can um, be Catholic and be also Buddhist and be Catholic and also bring in a little yoga. And you get to do all these different things. And we were discussing whether that was good or bad. And Raj has this very interesting thing to say about one of his concerns about getting to pick and choose.
3: The thing i worried about is it's if you mix and match, you end up not really having to struggle with... A particular tradition's difficulty every spiritual tradition has things that a thoughtful person will struggle with like it could be how a religion how how women are treated or how casteism is is sort of bound up with its scriptures I think part of being a spiritual person is having to, to deal with that to think about it and to you need to be able to struggle with it because you can't escape it by going to some other spiritual tradition. If you think you're escaping it by going or mixing and matching from another spiritual tradition, what's really happening is you're dodging the questions.
2: So, one of the things I love about that is another topic that has come up in a lot of our um interviews has been this idea of um your faith evolving and yeah. dealing with hard questions, right? And some people deal with hard questions by just leaving faith altogether or leaving institutionalized religion altogether. And it was really helpful and has been helpful to me all year to have this person from another tradition say, yeah, welcome to the club. Religions have hard questions in them, and, and it's okay to struggle with them. And in fact, you know, not everything is going to make sense. And if you're a thoughtful person, you think about it. And that has been, uh, I don't know if I want to say empowering, but just reassuring, Mm. Um, just as I've gone throughout my year.
4: Great. I have two thoughts about that, Heather. Um, Both of them come from Barbara Brown Taylor. Or maybe it's Barbara Taylor Brown. She wrote a book called Holy Envy, and I've been reading it. And she talks about this phenomenon of religious shoplifting, of kind of, Taking the relics or the symbols of other religions and incorporating them into your house or your office, what she actually did uh, was take them from around the world and put them in her office at school, where she taught. But she said that when you 're looking out from over the fence of your own pasture at somebody else 's, it always looks pristine, you know there 's no um, muddy patches or manure in it. <laughs> You always notice those about your own. And so envy, holy envy, is often this reflection of what we sort of miss or doubt about our own tradition. And so I love that Raj is actually saying that, that we're almost dodging the tough things. The other thought was that I often feel this holy envy. I guess an example that I could use would be the prayer, salat in Islam, where everybody is praying together, their prayer is one prayer and they pray from head to foot. That is something I've always wanted to participate in. Instead of converting to Islam per se, what I've decided to do is to attend the temple in my own tradition more where there's a certain kind of united prayer. And that has helped me to sort of dive deeper into my own particularism so that Their goodness has accentuated my goodness, that we're competing in good works. It's not sort of an I want to be you, but it's like I want to be like you, so I'm going to try harder in my own way.
2: I like how you just quoted the Quran there, um, which I only know because we heard from Ibu Patel who said, there's a beautiful line in the Quran that talks about how we should all compete in righteousness. Mm. Which is another thing that I've been thinking about. I actually have a whole list from all this year of like 15 or 20 things that I've heard in our interviews that I just occasionally pop into my mind. And I'm like, yeah, I'm so glad that I heard that.
5: Yeah,
6: I'd like to comment on the quote that you shared, Heather. Um, And I wrote down on my notes that it reminded me of our discussion about the power of now, something that Austin brought up where, you know, that book is fabulous. It kind of weaves these ideas from all these traditions into it. But something we noticed was that it doesn't take those little facets on their own terms necessarily. It folds them in into kind of the narrative that the book's telling. But um, it kind of does this shoplifting, you know? It travels around stealing little quotes uh, without kind of settling down and understanding and sitting within that tradition. And so— I guess that was just a sign to me a little bit that it is worth it to sit with a tradition, with a doctrine, with an institution even, as hard as it can be. I think that's something that um, we've also learned over the course of this year. You know, It can be hard to sit with institutions. Um, we We love individuals. By taking the time to take a tradition on its own terms, to understand it, to see where it truly differs from you, and to Notice that difference and accept it. It's a, it can be a really beautiful thing
2: mm. well thanks guys i'm I hope you all listen to Raj.
4: What episode number was that? Do you know?
2: Oh good heavens, don't ask hard okay. questions. Okay. Um, I know
4: <laughs> but he's a really dynamic speaker. I loved his episode yeah you can you can tell he's
0: a writer too. somehow his thoughts seem <clears throat> seem particularly organized to me.
2: Oh well, you know, his wife did reach out to me and say, "Thanks for editing Raj, so he sounds really coherent and- <laughs> And we're just really impressed with how uh, smart he sounds. So, there was that moment.
6: That was episode 115. (laughs) Oh, look at Peter. Great, great, great. Thank you,
2: Peter.
0: Well, I have a couple that have really stuck with me. And I I want to talk about this whole idea of Faith and Doubt, because our show is called In Good Faith. And we get kind of a definition of that from one of our guests, which kind of surprised me that he had actually spent a little bit of time thinking about the title of our show before he appeared on it and makes this really great point. Uh, This is Brian McLaren with his book, Faith After Doubt. I wonder if we think that once we have accepted faith at some point, usually early in our life, That we Mm -hmm. think we're done, we're fixed. We have found the rock, so to speak, and and there we will stay planted. But you have developed four really memorable one-word definitions of what you call four stages of faith. Yes. Is that inevitable as we grow and we have more experiences that, that we will go through those stages to some degree? Steve, this is one of the reasons I love the name of your podcast. Because
7: to talk about something in good faith, what we're saying is, This is my honest faith at this moment in my life. Mm. And what I think happens to a lot of people is they're part of a group that shares a certain understanding of faith, and then they go through a transition. It might be great suffering. It might be a great education. It might be an experience of travel or something else. They have something that propels them into a new place. And in the language I use in Faith After Doubt, they might move from stage one, which I call simplicity, to stage two, which I call complexity. But if they have the feeling that people in their group won't accept them for being in this new place, then they have to keep translating everything or editing everything they say so that they won't stick out and not fit in. And there can come a point where you're different enough from where you started that you actually feel you're lying or you're deceiving people, you're hiding people. And so that experience of division can make you then start saying things you don't actually mean and you lose good faith. At that point, you begin acting in bad faith. I'm just saying this, not because I mean it, but because I need to say it to remain accepted among people. So that the idea of growing from one stage to another would be so natural if you were in a community that would allow you to do so. But if you were in a community that wouldn't, then you face this real temptation of, I maintain my status in the group with bad faith or I risk being rejected in good faith.
0: (laughs) That's a dilemma. I really love how he allows for growth. To be able to speak in good faith, I, I think maybe I've just taken that for granted that I can share what I actually believe. But I have as I think about it, been in situations, the, the, the stereotypical one is no politics at Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in which case you're choosing one good over another, uh, e- expressing thoughts, uh, but let's all just be together and, and be grateful here. Um, I think it's kind of scary if you think about the idea that you could be pushed out of your religious community, simply for saying, I do have these questions. And often that it would be fear, like, no, don't bring those up. We don't want to deal with that. Or we don't know the answer to that. Or um, it just seems scary not to be able to honestly share what you're thinking or wondering about. And I was reminded this year in several of these uh, episodes, there are places that you could live in the world today where it is absolutely not even safe to say what you believe or ask certain questions.
2: I, you know, I was thinking about what he said about being in a community where you're allowed to ask those questions. And, you know, I've moved a lot uh, in as an adult. And I lived in Florida for a while during my PhD. And that was a community of saints where I felt like we all had questions, and we were all very open about it, and it didn't feel to me like anyone was about to fall off the path. It felt, in fact, like we were all supporting each other and able to talk through some of the things that were were troublesome for us or that we didn't have a testimony of, to use the parlance of the Latter-day Saints. So, and I love that. I loved that experience. And then I moved somewhere else where it wasn't like that anymore. And that was a little bit harder, but I felt like it was a challenge, right, um, in a good way. Like, okay, now you're not with all these like-minded people who feel really open, but there's still a place for you, and you you now have to do more work um, to be able to talk to people and to be honest about where you're at. and. And then I moved to another place, right? So, like, it's just this sort of continual assessment of, well, what's allowable here? And how do I remain authentic and express myself? Have
0: have you found in situations where it didn't feel as safe that if you ventured a little bit and said, but I have wondered this, and had people afterwards, they didn't dare speak up in a, oh, so a meeting, many people but say, will say thank I'm glad you. yeah. you're, you're not alone there.
2: Right. Yeah. No. And that's the thing is if we are willing, even just a little bit to say, and that's something I've always wondered about, or this is how I feel about this. And I know that uh, for a lot of people, they don't feel that way. There's always someone around who's like, thank you for sharing. And I too feel, you know, I know I feel like I can be more authentic about myself now. Um, And that's a scary place to be, to be the person who raises their hand and says, hey, guys, uh, (laughs) why don't we talk about it in this way? Um, But, you know, you're going to be reaching other people if you can do that.
0: Plus, I think the whole idea that that people don't need to despair if their understanding of God or life experience changes, that it's not, oh, no, I have lost my faith, quote, unquote, but maybe I'm just actually a person— experiencing spiritual growth.
4: And I'm just still moving along. I love the effort to complicate faith. uh, that There's a measure of development and fluidity in it. I've been thinking about what vocabulary we can start using to get beyond the binary of a yes, no to certain propositions. Like, do you believe in God? Because I've had experiences where I've tried to articulate how I believe and what my faith is like, And I've really sort of struggled. People have just interpreted me as either being agnostic or atheistic. But it's like there's a difference um, between assenting to a series of propositions. And there are different kinds of knowing. How do I talk about them? I need to figure that out.
2: Well, and I think what's interesting, many communities have this. And our community, the Latter-day Saint community, has this as well. We have a script. And that script is is instructive. It's a didactic script. It's teaching you how do you talk about your spiritual experience. And I think that script is really great. And, you know, when I was 14 and I learned the script, it was so helpful to have a script. Now I say this, and now I say this. And that didn't mean I didn't feel those things. It just meant I needed a path to walk that, I under- that was clear to me. Um, and then later, as we're all saying— your faith changes a little bit, or you get your own words. You figure out what your own vocabulary is. Um, But it can be hard, as you're saying, Austin, to then talk back to that community who's so used to hearing a script, right? Yes. And when someone goes off script, you might be cheering in the audience, like, whoa, (laughs) look at them. That's really cool, right? Like, you might be really excited.
6: Yeah. This idea of a script or a framework I think is so important. And I love that quote um, from Brian because— it has been my experience um i really felt resonated with that quote um about four or five years ago now i was at a point of change like you mentioned like moving um i was going to college and i at the same time was kind of speed running the deconstruction and reconstruction of my faith which was a bad time to be doing that um (laughs) Or just
2: not convenient. How
0: about that? Is there a convenient time to rethink (laughs) everything your life is based on?
6: Um, There's probably never a convenient time, but it was certainly a particularly inconvenient time. And I kind of, in that moment, I was caught in a cycle of black and white thinking, though I didn't have the name for it at the time. And I clung really strongly to these scripts and structures. And I had convinced myself that if i found one flaw in these in these structures i need to completely rebuild you know the the hallmark of black and white thinking and it was really difficult because i felt like i was alone and over the last couple of years thankfully i've been able to take some time and distance and stop my mad dash towards like whatever goal towards deconstruction i don't know but I've been able to put the pieces back together. And I think, you know, the importance of learning to take your time, find your language, find your voice, and find people to do that work with is really so crucial. And, you know, it's, it's hard at any point in life. It's particularly hard when you're young. And um, I'm just glad that we got the chance to recognize that and kind of share that with, our audience. You're listening to In Good Faith.
0: This is our 2020 Roundup episode and we'll be back with more in just a moment. So our newest member of the production team is Leah. Leah, and so we totally put you on the spot. You came to your first meeting and we said, and guess what? You get to be on the podcast and yep. now go listen to some episodes and pull something. What did you find in, in your sifting?
1: Yes. So I am new to the podcast, but I've listened to a few episodes. And the one that really stood out to me, well, all of them are good, but I liked the one with (laughs) Nava. Thank you. Um, It was episode 113 with Nava. And I liked her discussion on prayer because it just resonated really well with me. She talks about how she's stubborn and determined, and I'm the same way. And she'd be knocking or like banging on a door, begging God to open it. And God wouldn't open the door, and she saw that as kind of an answer, too. Because usually when we think God answers our prayers, it's Him opening the door and giving us um, that option. But sometimes Him closing the door is an option, too.
8: Maybe you pray, you ask for guidance, you feel guided in a particular direction, you make the effort, and then the effort is confirmed or it isn't. It's sort of like the door opens or it closes, When I learned of that concept, maybe eight years ago, it did shift the, like, I feel like I got stuck less often. Like sometimes I would just like knock on a door because I'm very strong-willed, like knock on a door and just be like, if I'm determined enough, this door will open. And then the door wouldn't open, but I'd be stuck there for a long time. And when I learned of that concept, I found that I was able to move on faster. If something wasn't working out, just trusting like, okay, this wasn't confirmed. This isn't what God wants for me. So this other opportunity might be. In the Baha'i faith, there are revealed prayers that were revealed by the prophet. And there are like prayers for different occasions. And there's one prayer that Baha'u'llah says has like a special potency. And if you say it with like utmost sincerity, God will dispel your afflictions and remove your difficulties. And so I said that prayer at three in the morning. And I remember saying like, God, if I'm in the wrong place, like pluck me out and put me anywhere you want me, I will go. But I know that this isn't it. And two days later, I got a phone call from the head of the office in New York, the the Baha'i international community, that a boss that I had worked with in Israel um, had referred me for for this job. There had been like a sudden opening and she thought I'd be really good at it. Would I be interested in applying? And I knew I was going to get it. And I knew I was going to move to New York because I knew that it was an answer to my 3 a.m. prayer. So I would say that at that time, that year and a half, it was God. Like I was turning to God. I wasn't turning to friends I wasn't turning to family. I was just turning to God all the time.
1: I loved her openness and sharing that experience and how um, she talked about moving to New York and she said, I knew I was going to go. I knew I was going to move. And just her willingness to let God kind of guide her life. I think that resonated well with me, especially because like Peter said, like I had just moved to college. I moved across the country and it's just a time of a lot of unknowns. Like early twenties is a stressful time period. You have to make a lot of decisions, and it's hard, so I think allowing God to kind of guide my life has been very peaceful for me.
2: I love the confidence she had, right I've never been that confident in my life right <laughs> <laughs> right um I'm, I'm I always feel like I'm like I'm making this decision, God, so uh. I mean, I guess stop me if it's not the right one and here I plunge. And uh, but she was like, no, that that was an answer and this is all good and and I think that's well, wonderful. That's faith. Yeah.
0: She was totally confident exercising
4: faith, I guess, is how I would define that. Yeah. There seems to be a predisposition in some people to get those kind of manifestations. Uh, Religious psychologists have a pretty fancy term. It's called transliminality, but it's just something that makes you open (laughs) to kind of a divine intrusion, like the voice telling you, oh, you're going to apply to this job or you're going to move to New York. But it reminded me um, what you were saying, Leah, before about the stubbornness in prayer of the importunate widow, that parable that Jesus tells where she's asking the Lord for... I'm not sure actually what it was, but... I think redress for some wrong. Yeah. She's asking for justice, and he says no, no, no. And then she wearies him with her pleading, and eventually he says yes. And uh, I think that's reflective of what God is like for us. We can weary him with our asking, and he'll eventually <laughs> give it to us. Not to say that you can get anything you want, but if he knows we really, really want it and our desires are righteous, then... Um, yeah, that type of thing can happen. The miraculous can come about.
6: Wow.
7: I love
4: that. Being open
0: to the intrusion of God in, into your life, however Something you phrase like that. Something like that, yeah. I'm trying to write it down here so I can <laughs> say, please do this for me, to me, whatever. <laughs> and this is a thing I love about In Good Faith is that we are. So, Nava is an artist, uh, so she has that whole background. She's also Baha'i, so this is a faith lots of us in the U.S. are just learning about. And it's just great to find these commonalities. You're going, yeah, yeah, I'm in that very same place. And the idea that you can do that and not build a wall between, well, that's her experience as this person of this whole other tradition. I really love that. Mm -hmm. That's great. Thank you.
2: And to speak to that, you know, when she mentioned these prayers that the Baha'i have, you know— our own tradition prides itself on everyone speaks directly to God and you say what's in your heart and there's this whole idea that we don't have prescripted prayers. But I gained so much sort of empathy and insight into how she used them, that she didn't see them as, oh, this is just a thing I say um, and I'm like walled off from God by by saying it. But she, in fact, invested it with so much love and trust that it became you know, a powerful tool for her. Um, and I had never thought that way. It was really eye-opening for me. To
6: connect to that, I was just reading yesterday um, the writing from a Jewish philosopher who will be on the podcast shortly. I'll keep it hidden. But um, in one of his writings, he was discussing uh, the power of kind of a ritualized prayer, a recorded written prayer. And he was quoting someone that said that they would rather write two entire lectures on the Torah than write one small page of, like, prescribed prayer. Because the difficulty of capturing that experience, like, in allowing that to be something to go to other people, is something so sacred and powerful that I think we can miss that sometimes in the highly individualized kind of fallout of American Protestantism. Right. Um... These are beautiful and powerful prayers that we should read and value and
4: ponder over. Um, And I just think that's beautiful. Yeah. There's an implementation, more or less, of a prescribed prayer that I think can constrain our religious affections. It's like a magnifying glass. Without that, maybe we thin out um, and we can't focus all of that emotional reserve or that sincerity into... um, a prescribed speech, where you don't really have to think about what you're going to say. It really comes from the heart. Now, I have a friend in my own tradition where you pray with your own words, who
0: starts every morning with a prayer attributed to Saint Francis oh. of Assisi, which is the one: "Lord, make me an instrument in Thy hands." Where there is, you know, this lack, let me do this to be a solution to that. And she does then include her own thoughts. Thoughts and prayers. I'm wary of that <laughs> that phrase in our society right now. But her intention is to read that prayer, speak it with sincerity to God, and then in her own prayer thereafter, be open to show me how to be that instrument in my specific circumstance.
2: Right. Well, I mean we got to talk to Simranjit Singh and you know, he kind of clarified us that the word mantra comes from the word prayer. In Urdu or um, Punjabi, he
6: also called it a formula, a which formula. was very interesting. Yeah,
2: and that idea of rep- repeated repeating to yourself an idea uh, isn't something that needs to bring s- like stasis or make things stale, but is in fact a thing to remind and to call your attention to. Um, and I, yeah, that's another thing that I keep repeating to myself the, uh, this past year. So.
0: So I cheated a little, and I looked in our folder of the clips, and I happened to just accidentally notice, Austin, that you had chosen one about someone finding an experience with the divine and
4: changing their course of their life through nature. Yeah, he had a transcendent experience with a tuna fish. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is why it caught my A dying tuna fish. Yeah, (laughs) it sounds kind of funny and a little dismal if you think about it as a dying tuna fish. Um, But I was really interested in doing this episode on nature for two trends. The first is, I'd say, spiritual. A lot of people are entering um, a movement that you'd call spiritual ecology or spiritual naturalism. And the thought there is that nature itself is mysterious enough and complex enough to actually contain sacred value, and that we don't need God or any additional religious doctrines to have an encounter with divinity. Hmm. Uh, we that, can that it just it's part and parcel of our existence. Yeah, like religious experiences can come from tuna or a fish or a forest and so he had that with um, a fish and started becoming a natural scientist and he considers himself to be religious which is interesting even though he doesn't prescribe to any faith tradition or maybe even believe in a being out there that created all of this i'm not sure the other movement is uh, just to raising awareness of the environmental crises that we're facing. People are starting to understand the stakes of what uh, our future will look like if we don't change and take some remedial action uh, to preserve our environment. So those together caused me to try and find some people that were really interested in nature and took a spiritual focus on that so yeah, we can listen to Rich, and um, his name is Rich Blundell, I should say. And then I'll t- tell you what I think about his story.
5: So I started off in the lobster industry, which is sort of like a coastal shellfish industry. But eventually I became uh, more I got more aligned with the commercial aspects of it, and when you do that, it calls you to go further out, to go for more fish, bigger fish, have faster boats. And one day Fishing out on a place called Stellwagen Bank, which is about um, twenty or thirty miles north of Provincetown, Massachusetts, at the tip of Cape Cod, uh, I caught what turned out to be my first and my last bluefin tuna. I, I, we ended up pulling this tuna up. It was an eight hundred pound, gigantic behemoth of a organism, and it was there on the deck, and everybody was really excited and you know patting me on the back because this is going to be like we were going to get so much money for this fish and when we got back to the dock reaching down to kind of get the rope around its snout and i realized that it was still alive and it was really looking at me and in that moment you know that there was blood all over the place everybody was excited and uh, but i just as i kind of just got drawn into this thing and i watched it die and as it died the color just drained out of it out of its eye and out of its body and and all of the all of the excitement about, and the celebration turned into something else. It turned into something more like shame and regret. Anyway, I sort of hid that emotion, but it it stuck with me. And I, I never fished commercially like that again. In fact, I decided to um, get my act together, become a good student. I decided to go for like a marine biology, geology degree, and then, you know, and then that, that path ended up in, in you know, having a doctorate in big history. So that's my bluefin tuna story.
4: <laughs> Rich was looking to commercially profit from taking an aspect of nature, uh, dissecting it, tearing it apart, selling its meat, um, sort of objectifying this tuna in a way to ensure his own security. I think that we all have this self-preserving instinct. Obviously, we need to control some aspects of our lives to be able to reliably survive. However, that impulse can overleap its bounds and we can take it into domains that it shouldn't apply to. So I was thinking about this. Um, Wealth and commercial benefit don't really appeal to me, but intellectually profiting from things does. I have a bit of um, a diffuse and sporadic attention span. And so when something <laughs> like a religious topic interests me, you'll see where I'm going with this. I pursue it kind of frantically. Um, and I need to like get mastery over it almost right then and right there. And this might be um, symptomatic of like a collective ADHD that we experience as society, or maybe it's my own problem. But it's basically, I need to know everything about this. It's a chronic hastiness. And I thought, you know, what if I am dissecting, analyzing, seeking ultimately rational control over God uh, or these other areas of my life? And in so doing, I'm sort of demystifying them and um, I'm not paying attention to their mysterious totality. And so that lesson was really important for me to, to slow down and to appreciate beings in their wholeness, which he eventually does, and which I would like to do in my spiritual and daily practice with people and with the subjects that fascinate me.
9: Hmm.
6: I, I heard this anecdote just a couple days ago that I think really resonates with this about a boar. And this particular species, I can't recall the name, so I'll have to look it up later. Um, but the horns grow up out of its snout, and then they curl back towards the, towards the boar's head. And these boars are famous for being terribly aggressive, just always uh, bashing their skulls into things, and, you know, wild boars are terribly dangerous at times. Um, but what they discovered is that if the boar doesn't try to break its own horns— they'll curl back into their own head. It's, it's a really kind of gruesome image. Hmm. But they do, they do that kind of aggressive fighting to protect themselves. And what um, the context I heard this in was kind of a metaphor for applying your brain to a particular topic. And that like, sometimes you have this urge to understand something, to know something, to quantify it. And so you kind of, let your brain run at something, fight at something, work at a problem. And um, almost as a self-preservation instinct, kind of as like an instinct or impulse. Um, but I think the beautiful thing here is that sometimes, like I, I feel this too, I try to overintellectualize everything I do. And so to see kind of from this example, from other things we've talked about on this podcast, that the world and God is bigger then our minds can kind of attack. And kind of recognizing that and trying to let there be that space for reflection and peace, even though your mind might be running and fighting faster than like your soul can cope. um, It's a really difficult problem. And it's, I, I don't know, I think it's an important one to discuss. And I'm glad that you brought it up.
4: And I'm wondering if you guys experience hurry in other dimensions. I mean, I always experience it sort of abstractly, but like, oh, I need to get all of these things and I, I will say that
0: the moment I started thinking of myself as an actual grown-up, not just by law and by age and by the number of children I have and a mortgage, that's crushing me. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually thought I think I might be a grown-up was learning to allow the not knowing and actually finding peace in not knowing. Like, I'm okay with the things I don't know. I still want to know them, but I'm not frantic anymore. Or maybe that's just you get old and tired and just I don't have the strength
4: to <laughs> pursue this
0: anymore.
2: <laughs> this, Yeah, that sort of reminds me um, when I was in my late 30s Lots of—I mean, over the last 20 years, there's been lots of political activism in America, and I remember a younger friend coming to me and saying, you know, I just feel like I have to speak up and take a stand and do all these different actions to be an ethical person, Um, and I I feel overwhelmed by it, and I— And, you know, I was like, I don't know if I'm just fat and lazy at this point in my life, but, you know, there are some things that are super priorities for me that I'm going to always talk about. And then there are others that I'm going to support and I'm going to like let people know I'm an ally to, but I can't be in every single place doing every single thing. Um, and that's okay, you know? And I'm not going to judge other people for what they've chosen as their priority, right? You mentioned St. Fran- Francis of Assisi, which of course reminds me of Sarah McLaughlin, which then reminds me of those Christmas uh, commercials she does about the dogs that are being mistreated. Mm-hmm. And every time I see them, I weep, but that's not quite my battle, right? Like, I don't <laughs> have the time to invest in that one, but Sarah McLaughlin can. And I'm glad that she's picked something good for her, right? Um, And yeah, so I'm not gonna judge other people for their priority, and I'm gonna be clear about what my priorities are. And I'm, you know, just have some generosity with the people around me.
0: Austin, thank you for that story with Rich Blundell. I mean, he had so many good things to say, but boy, that image is the one that stuck with me, and how a life can change in a moment like that, the spiritual direction. You are listening to our 2022 Roundup episode of In Good Faith, and we'll be back with a few more quotes and excerpts from our favorites of the year in just a moment. Welcome back to In Good Faith. This is our 2022 Roundup episode where we're looking back on the past year and pulling out some of our very favorite moments and favorite guests. And Peter, I know you've got one lined up.
3: Mm -hmm.
6: This is a quote From our episode with Dr. Matthew Wickman, who came and joined us in the studio, which was fabulous. Um, And the topic of this episode was kind of an exploration into divine silence, um, which is a topic um, explored, in this case, through poetry and through some personal examples. But it's a really critical topic when, you know, in prayer we reach out to God and no answer comes. It happens all the time. I think it's probably a constant. I mean, if it's not a constant for you, like, go forward. Like, you're doing the work. But I think for a lot of people, this is the norm rather than the exception, this divine silence. And what he had to say about it really kind of turned my preconceived notions on their head. So let's go to
9: the quote. I find a lot of times, the way answers come to me, actually, Steve, often from my own, my own case, is that God will bring my attention to something and then just be silent. And you get the sense that God's not saying, look at this and now here's what it means. I'll give you five paragraphs. It's, 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 it's I want you to look at this. This is big, it's vast, it's amazing, it's profound. And it could be something like these images in the James Webb telescope, or it could just be a person that I may have looked past. It could be whether it's in in my congregation, family, at work, student, whatever. I feel something's brought to mind and then God falls silent so that I know to attend to this thing and think about it more carefully. So that silence becomes, in my experience, a mode by which God communicates with us. It's a way of directing our attention to something without giving us the impression. It can be reduced to two sentences. So it's not just that we say, I ask, but I don't think I'm receiving.
0: It's like if we learn to listen, we might detect something in that silent moment because of our silence.
6: So that quote spoke to me. uh, It's kind of situated amongst other really great ideas, so definitely go back and check out that episode. Um, One thing it revealed to me was kind of a confirmation of something I'd experienced, which I mentioned earlier. um, Last couple years have been a period of long reconstruction for me. And during that time, I've experienced profound latitude to, you know, find truth in a variety of places. Before, I had a mindset of extreme orthodoxy. Um... I must find it in this text, in this place. Uh, These are the channels through which God can speak to me and nothing else. And over this period, I was able to see God in the philosophy of Spinoza. Uh, Kind of, maybe not a weird place, but definitely an odd place, leaving a very analytical mindset, reading lines upon lines of logical argument about the nature of God and experiencing something through that. And I think something about this quote that stuck out to me is God gives us latitude to to find ourselves and find our voice. Um, And this this message kind of reconfirmed to me um, that we have that ability. And that's one of the beautiful things about kind of interfaith dialogue and discussion We have these moments of holy envy where we see something and we say to ourselves, I don't really know what that is yet, but I'm going to find out and I'm going to make it mine somehow. And we've talked about how we don't want to do that from a perspective of, like, stealing, but understanding and reincorporating. And I think this quote just speaks to the fact that God gives us permission to do that.
2: I've been reading Patrick Mason's Planted, which we are, you'll be hearing from Patrick Mason shortly uh, in our season coming up, Um, and he was talking about Mother Teresa experiencing divine silence and how she struggled and how she was in so much pain over that silence. And then I thought about Mark Minor, who we had uh, on the show in November, um, who— seems to have daily conversations and hear God's voice at every moment, right? And um, I had that question of why one person and not the other, um, and what is that like for me? And of course, from my childhood, uh, I just grew up with the idea that, oh, you're not talking to me? That's fine. <laughs> I, I We don't have to talk. Uh <laughs> <laughs> it's just sort of uh, what my childhood wrought for me uh, psychologically.
0: I know you're busy.
2: <laughs> yeah, was, you know, if you yeah, ever get a moment, I'm um, here. Uh, so, um, and then you know, I think that's what I think that's the value of these episodes in so many ways is to turn back to yourself and say, well, what is my experience, and how, and is that how I want my experience to be? Should I change? Is there a possibility of change? Right? And just reflect, right? There's not a comparison of, oh, no, they're better than me or I'm better than them. But, oh, is that how you experience it? Oh, I let me articulate how I experience it. And that's been so helpful to me personally.
0: I love this idea that you bring up, Peter, with this quote you played from uh, Matthew Wickman about the idea of God directing our attention. But then it's like, okay, why am I noticing this person? Why am I obsessed with this whatever it is you've been? But then you have all the work to do. And the best, the best script writing coach I ever worked with when I was writing a particular script uh, was really good at pointing out, here's where this falls short. Here's where these things aren't connected. And I remember once at the very beginning, and I learned never to ask this again, was, well, then what should they do? <laughs> and <laughs> he, he he tried not to laugh in my face. And he chuckled. He said, I would not steal the experience of you discovering that from you for a million dollars. It was like, I he he knew what I was going to learn from doing that. And his head was full of possibilities. But he wasn't going to share even one of them with me because... He was going to take delight in what I came up with when I did the work.
4: I guess I can think of God that way a little bit in, in that situation. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. I had this thought as well about God communicating through us in a silent way. We have this dialogical model of revelation, more or less, in our tradition, where we might hear a voice or get a very specific informational tidbit about what it is that we should do or what is true. But I think that God is wider. He can communicate in more subtle ways. There's this metaphor of being a beachcomber where you're walking along the beach, things will come up from out of the ocean, and you just say, oh, fascinating. Like, what does this mean? What does it indicate? And that's a metaphor maybe for our conscious and our subconscious. I think that there are a lot of deep memories out there, but I think God is out there. He'll bring things into our consciousness from behind the scenes and something that really allows me to acknowledge his existence sort of behind the curtains within my mind and spirit somewhere is uh, sleep. Like this thing that happens to me where I don't have any control over it. It's just this passive submission and it's brought upon me and maybe a thought or a a attentional direction can be like that where you don't really know how it got to be there but suddenly you're noticing this person or your attention is directed at this book, this philosopher what if that's God? Or or this tuna fish
0: This has been really fun for me and frankly I could go another hour or two because I love hearing all of these ideas and The conversation is what I love about In Good Faith, that it's not we're going to tape someone's lecture on faith or somebody's experience on charitable service, but we get to ask them. And then when they they say something, we can say, wait, 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 wait a minute, you did what? And tell me more about that and dig a little bit deeper. So I gave myself the challenge of besides finding uh, an interesting quote or one that had really influenced me this year to try and find the single sentence. Wow. (laughs) And maybe I gave myself that assignment because I knew exactly what it was all year long. (laughs) And it keeps coming back to my mind. Uh, So, Reverend Dr. William Barber II, um, he has this interesting way of working in the political world based on his faith and his motivation. But he doesn't see it as politics so much as, I was called to feed the poor. And that's not politics. That's not right or left or conservative or liberal. That's the gospel that I am converted to. And he shares something that his father told him that has stuck in my mind the whole year long. My father taught me
6: something. He said, you have to decide in life whether your ultimate goal is to be successful or significant. And what makes you significant in terms of the gospel is very different from what society sees as successful. Because significance for a nation or individual all goes back
0: in as much as you did for the least of these. So, in as much as you did for the least of these. Of course, that speaks to me in my own faith tradition. But really, that, that's kind of the golden rule principle that we find in faith after faith and, and people of no professed faith. And so, I first of all, I just want to say thank you to all of our guests who have really shared from their heart. And that is something to say, would you come in here and speak to me about something that's very personal? And sometimes it's things that you just don't share with someone you meet in the supermarket. Yeah. <laughs> but that they would be willing to do that and to share their hearts. And that's really influenced my life for good. And And it's been so fun to hear the different quotes and different guests that you've all mentioned. Your experiences here together with our senior producer Heather Bigley, our producers Austin Ball, Peter Ellison, Leah King, our engineer Carly Wilson. I'm Stephen Cap Perry, and I hope you subscribe to our podcast in good faith. You'll be part of our quarterly book club with books that have something to do with a spiritual nature, whether Gilead, the novel coming up for this coming February. And we'd love to hear your comments. You can email us at in good faith at byu.edu.